Welcome back to a new episode of IE Unfolded, the first podcast unveiling people behind the institution, powered by the IE Think Project. As always, this is Giorgio Gallo and with me, my favorite co-host, Ronnie Cardozo. Hello, guys, and thank you for tuning in with us today. So, Ronnie, this episode is particularly special as it is the last episode of the first season of IE Unfolded. And at this point, it is necessary to thank the whole IE Think Club for their amazing support during this whole journey. And I also want to thank you personally, Ronnie, for your help and support and for having agreed in joining this adventure. I also want to thank all the people listening to the podcast and to all the guests that have been here making it possible. And talking about guests, today we have a guest that defines herself as a product of globalization. She's a professor in many IE graduate and undergraduate courses. She's a researcher, a consultant, a social entrepreneurship expert, and head of the IE Entrepreneurship Department. With immense pleasure, let's welcome Rachida Justo. Welcome, Rachida. How are you? Hello. Thank you for inviting me to this very interesting podcast. It's an honor to be participating in your last podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rashida, for agreeing to do this with us. So, Rashida, you've been our professor in social entrepreneurship. So we've had the chance to, you know, meet you and talk to you and know about your expertise. But I remember that you have a very diverse background, right? You are half Tunisian, half Dominican, which is the first time I've ever met this mix. And it's so, like, interesting. So how did you end up in Madrid? How... What is your background? I don't know if you want to maybe walk us a little bit over that. Yes. Uh, well, actually, uh, I think that my background fits very well, i.e. students' background, and which is maybe one of the reasons uh, why I'm, I'm always happy to be in this institution. It's a very diverse uh, institution in terms of professor and also in terms of students. Uh, Ronette, you're very diverse too, if I don't, <laughs> if I recall correctly. Uh, in terms of my own personal background, so my father is Dominican, my mother was Tunisian, they made they met in Paris. I kind of followed that path too because I married a, a, at least a half French guy, so I'm also French in nationalities, we speak French at home with the kids. And, and, and I landed in Spain, it was a little bit serendipitous, but basically because I was living in Tunisia, I wanted to reconnect with my Latino origins, but I uh, did want to do a, a PhD in a renowned institution, so I ended up in Spain, which kind of had both combinations, and, and I guess I was very lucky to find a place like IE that really fits this international background. I can really relate to that, and that is also one of the reasons why I chose to go to, because you, have you ever lived in Dominican Republic? In Dominican Republic? Yes, I was born there and I, I stayed there until I was six years old. And then I would spend all my summers in Dominican Republic. So I think I can really relate to you in that sense. It's like, you know, majority of your life, you haven't lived there. And it's kind of like, you do want to recognize with that part of your identity. And, and I feel like that's the reason why I chose Madrid. I, I wanted to be a, a like, surrounded by people that speak Spanish when where you can easily get the food as well, <laughs> the culture, but still, you know, being close to family, like my other part of the family. Absolutely. So I, 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 I can understand that, uh, you know, I, I sometimes uh, kind of describe my something that is very special about people like us, which I call it the cultural boredom syndrome, which is you never fit in a very uh, like uh, specific type of culture. You, yes. you spend some time in a country that has just one culture, 
you kind of get get the sense that you're not fitting because you're very international in many ways. So that's that's why we need to be in an in, in international context where we can relate to some of our backgrounds, but also have a very wide array of, of, of cultures too, no? Yeah, I, I can't relate in that sense regarding <laughs> nationalities, but like the cultural shock I had when I moved, when I w- was like 17, moving from Palermo to Milan and seeing a, like a whole different way of perceiving the city of living life with like public transportation, a lot of people from a lot of places. And Palermo is actually one of the most multicultural cities in Europe. Uh, so in that sense, th- this kind of diversity is there, but people are trying like to mix up, to, to live in this kind of melting pot. So going to Milan and seeing how different cultural identities were there, like people coming from all the other parts of Europe, being there was kind of a cultural shock. So <laughs> I, I can k- kind of kind of understand what, what you are saying. But how long have you been at AI, Rashida? Oof, for ages. <laughs> I think I, I started as a research assistant while finishing my PhD around 2002. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and this is a little bit of a, depending on you, could be an easier or hard question, but what do you like the most about being a teacher at AI? No, it's an easy thing. It's an easy one in the sense that there are a lot of things that are great about being a teacher at IE. First, just to for 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 our listeners, especially if they're students, uh, you guys need to be aware that we're not only teachers. Some of us are not only teachers, we wear a lot of hats. So I guess that what I love about IE beyond the diversity that we already mentioned is the diversity of the things we do on a given day. Uh, there is no specific, there's no typical day in, in, in my life. So I'm, I might do some management stuff one day or one morning because I'm heading the department. So it's more management type of skills that I need there. I might be doing some teaching and then I can spend the afternoon doing research, could be consulting or, you know, academic research, which are pretty different sometimes. So, and, and focusing on the teaching specifically, what I like about it is that um, you never know how it will go. So you, you get in class, the fact that it's very student and uh, participant centered uh, uh, type of teaching, you have a script of the things that you're gonna say and the type of interaction that you wanna have, but it never goes exactly by the book. So there is a lot of uncertainty uh, there is a lot of excitement related to that if you like this kind of uncertainty as a professor and also you learn a lot from your students which which is great uh, I keep on learning every day and and they keep you up to your toes you you cannot you cannot sleep on your laurels you cannot you think you you control the topic until you meet these students that are very on top of things that know the state of the art and you have to renew yourself constantly so they kind of push you to keep innovating and keep on recycling yourself in a way absolutely you are extremely focused on entrepreneurship being a social entrepreneurship professor and so on and we know you also took a specific program at Harvard business school focused on teaching this the subject how do you think teaching entrepreneurship is different from teaching any other subject in that sense? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> I will say that it's it's different and, and it's tougher in, 
it's easier in the sense that you get a, a bunch of students that generally self-select, especially to IE, because they, they are interested by the topic. So that's, that's an advantage to have some sort of uh, audience that is engaged with you initially. But also, uh, uh, it, you have a very high responsibility in the sense that the expectations are sometimes very high. Uh, people come to, to school with very specific view on what entrepreneurship is. Some people have the impression that uh, entrepreneurship cannot be taught. And there are some parts that cannot be taught, just like social entrepreneurship. You cannot teach, teach people to want to change the world and to want to do good. This is something that it's, it's in you or isn't. Uh, but you can help people that want to do that uh, learn about the process, the do's, especially the don'ts and avoid some specific pitfalls. So, so I guess this is what is particular about uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, when you compare it, for example, to a finance course, people don't get out with a formula, right? Uh, they get out with things, knowledge that is very often intangible. And, and a lot of students come back to me like five or six years later on saying, I did all the things that you said we shouldn't do. Uh, and, and I just now realized that what, what you were trying to teach us. So I don't know if it's good or bad, but uh, that's, that's very specific of entrepreneurship, I think. And that's also a thing that IE does in an incredible way, I think, in general, because to be honest, all the other, like in all the other contexts, entrepreneurship, as you were saying before, is, is seen as something extremely like fuzzy in the air that you don't know if there is this kind of border in between a science and an art and maybe it's the like the art of making the science work or the, the reverse way. But the thing is that people are starting to consider it more and more and more as something that can be understood, that can be studied and I really like one of the reasons why I'm here at IE is because IE understood it not now, but like years, years, years ago. And that's that's why we are in that sense, I think, amazing. Absolutely. I think you framed it very well. So it's the art of understanding the science. Can you repeat that? I, I liked it. I think I'll take notes. <laughs> that was a very, very well thought sentence. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But so you were talking and I remember like we took your uh, social entrepreneurship class and um, you mentioned it as well now, like social entrepreneurship is not something that, you know, everyone is interested in doing. And it's something that, for instance, like some people have more of like an inclination towards that. And I feel like I still gives you the the tools in case you want to take advantage of that. And obviously, you know, how, how like do you think IE can like push towards like towards like to um, encourage students to choose this as a career path? Well, I do think that there, there are a few things that you can do at least to uh, raise awareness uh, uh, about uh, the potential negative and positive impact an entrepreneur has. Uh, sometimes we don't take that path because we simply don't know it exists or we simply don't know how to go about it. And, 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 and actually I was uh, with another colleague giving a talk to my peers a couple of weeks ago about how to integrate sustainability. So really social environmental impact uh, understood very broadly in, in, in all their courses. And, and the idea really is to say, 
management, uh, people tend to think about management as something apolitical, uh, where it, that is neutral in a way. And I don't think it's neutral. There's nothing neutral in, in management. Every step that you take as a management manager, especially that we're talking about, you know, the word elite in a way, uh, has a very clear impact on a lot of SDG aspects, so poverty, you take it. So uh, so I, I do think that uh, just by allowing students to be aware about the potential impact that you have on society, on the environment, and, and, and having an open debate about sometimes, very often, the, the difficulties of trying to achieve that bottom line is necessary to help people make an informed choice. So we cannot force people to, to decide to be environmental or social oriented, but we cannot afford to let them leave our masters without being aware about the implications of, of what they do. So that's, that's the way I see it, at least. And on the other end, social entrepreneurship and like the social impact aspect is one of the reasons many people pick IE among other universities. Like we hosted a couple of weeks ago an MBA student, Tyler Berklasic, which uh, who I think is one of your students at the MBA. Yes. And he told us he chose IE specifically for its focus on social entrepreneurship. Uh, like he told us his stories during like he was at the Peace Corps and he knew about this uni focused on social impact and he said okay that's the one so in that sense what do you think are the most important tools that IE can give students and future students who want to have a social impact in in their future so one of the tools uh, that is kind of related to what I was mentioning before is critical thinking, is, is, is understanding uh, the, 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 the positive, negative potential impact that you have as a manager and thinking critically about it and, and understanding when, when taking managerial decisions, be it in finance, in operations, uh, uh, in marketing, understanding what, what, what potential impact this might have beyond just, you know, the financial aspect and the boundaries of your own organization. The second part is related also to your point about Tyler. Uh, I think we're, as an institution, we're very also lucky to have people like Tyler come to our school because uh, Tyler chose IE because he thought he could learn from us, but we learn a lot from people like himself who already come with a background, with an experience, very rich experience, uh, uh, personal experience also, uh, traveling all, all, all around the world. I, I remember Tyler has been in Africa. He's, he's got a lot of knowledge about uh, African countries, uh, despite the fact that he's an American. And, and that is something that a professor uh, in its own and its own cannot give to the students and but but they can facilitate the exchange and in the classroom when you have students like yourself or like Tyler uh, there is a possibility to learn from each other uh, which is a great a great experience uh, because we cannot spend our life traveling and, and and knowing other cultures we but we can at least be curious to have some of these experience through others and also debating different ideas debating different views of the world just like you you have that experience yourself when you move to Milan. This is something that 
uh, at, at the kind of a, a United Nations level. You can find it also in, in a small classroom at IE. So that's, that's another aspect that you can learn. Beyond, obviously, the very specific aspects of, you know, uh, what are the most successful example of business models uh, that, that ally social impact and financial profitability, which are kind of very specific to the course content, right? So the other aspect that was mentioning go beyond the specific course content, which you can find in some top other schools. But what is very specific about IE also is, is that diversity of background that kind of complements the complex, right? Absolutely. And okay, I have a little bit of a tough question then. We can open a debate on this. So I feel like when it comes to social entrepreneurship, another important aspect is compassion. I think like social entrepreneurs always have this kind of like linking point of of uh, being compassionate. So my question is to both Giorgio and Rashida, do you think that being compassionate is a skill or is it a mindset? Is it something that we can learn or is it something that we inherently have? It's a tough one. Right? <laughs> it's a very hard question. You, you, I understand it's the last episode, but you, <laughs> you are- I like challenging you, Giorgio. <laughs> So, Go ahead, Georgia. <laughs> you want to start? Sure. Wow. Um, let's try. Well, in in this sense, I, I don't really know if being compassionate is a skill that you can acquire. But in that sense, I'm quite sure that this kind of emotional intelligence that make you feel attached, make you uh, understand others and so on, it's definitely something that you can work on. Uh being compassionate like in absolute value is a huge thing and i really like personally believe that there needs to be probably um a kind of like you need to be born with it uh in in some in some senses but building your your emotional intelligence is something we we all should work on and it's something super important in my opinion absolutely so i i i echo Giorgio's uh, viewpoint here um, I tend to think about it in terms of degrees. Uh, we are all born with some level of compassion that we work on through our upbringing, education, personal experience or not. So we might go and lose part of it. Uh, but I do believe that, again, personal interactions uh, play a big role in that. So I've seen people uh, maybe not radically change, but kind of evolve towards a little bit more of a, uh, again, awareness and compassionate attitude towards others uh, due to interactions with people that had that as something very salient and, and through conversation, through, uh, uh, through discussions. So I think this is something that can be nurtured. And, and there is obviously, and I'm gonna say something that is, that is a very no-brainer here, but uh, there is also something related to personal development, which, I, I, which is why I do think that it's an important, something, important thing to, to get even in a business school. If you love yourself, you learn how to love others. So uh, sometimes uh, we come with this very big emphasis on, on learning, you know, frameworks, formulas, knowledge, acquire knowledge, but personal development is a necessary step towards being compassionate with respect to others. So maybe that's the first thing you have to achieve. Love yourself and then love others. 
Absolutely. And I think also this kind of like goes beyond, you know, we're talking about social entrepreneurship, but a good manager and a good business person and a good person in general must have like all this skill set of like emotional intelligence and, you know, personal development in order to be a great leader. And I think I is really good at kind of like forming that. I'm glad that you said it. <laughs> <laughs> So um, one of the topics we we touched in our course, and I, I think that's that's crucial, uh, especially in the world we're living right now, is microcredit. And we know that you've published some papers of on the role of gender in microcredit, and you're super attached to the topic. So we wanted to <laughs> dive deeper a bit more um, in the topic with you. Okay. Uh, well, um, so let's say that uh, I, I came to microcredit from, from two paths. The one on social entrepreneurship, because as you know, uh, uh, microcredit is probably like the epitome of, of social enterprises. It was the, the, the most successful examples, the initial ones, and, and one of the most uh, biggest uh, defenders and prophets of social entrepreneurship who is uh, Mohamed Yunus with Grameen Bank uh, led this this uh, this movement of microcredit, and the other path I went, I, I arrived to micro to studying microcredit for, was from a gender perspective because uh, initially microcredit was set up to mainly to free women and to give them the means to really help themselves uh, through small loans. Uh, because they are generally not uh, eligible for credit, especially in, in poor countries, right? So, so it's the combination of these two aspects that I thought was interesting, was understudied. There were a lot of assumptions about the fact that uh, not only microcredit helps you uh, go out of poverty, uh, but also empowers women and kind of liberates her liberates them. And, and it's partly true, but it's not completely true. There are a lot of boundary conditions that allow this to happen. And, and that's a little bit my research in a nutshell. I'm trying to be very short here. No, absolutely. I read that you you did some research, especially on the on the impact that gender has on network generation, how women's uh, kind of like affect the, the way that this microcredit is gonna is gonna be implemented. But now things I think this past year have changed a lot and you know now microcredit like is evolving into something else so what do you think is the future of microcredit now that you know more and more banks are going very digital now that credit's also more easily accessible like how what do you think how do you see that in the future? Well that's that's a very interesting question and to be honest I, I haven't dedicated too much time to think about it, but uh, you kind of put your finger on, on the important aspect that will shape the, the future of microcredit, which is the digitalization, right? Uh, I think digitalization has a lot of positive aspects because it allows to kind of democratize microcredit and, and, and reach out to a population that was uh, costly to reach because it was in rural areas or they were kind of hidden in slums. And, and the fact that everybody has access to cell phone, most mostly uh, kind of democratize access to mobile money and mobile credit too. Uh, it also have some, has some challenges also attached because one of the um, strengths of the, or innovation behind microcredit was also this very close relationship with the borrower 
in order to understand what are their needs, to what are the training that they might need and how to kind of accompany them to make informed decisions and manage their money uh, appropriately and, and in a skilled manner. Uh, and, and also there was this aspect of, of networking that you mentioned uh, through groups that were solidarily uh, responsible for, for repaying the, the loan. With the digitalization, some part of these might be lost and, and it's a little bit more of an impersonal relationship, more automatized or automated yeah. uh, relationship. And that also might, you know, is, is worth uh, thinking about in order to make sure we leverage the, the advantages, the upside of digitalization uh, without losing uh, some of the upside of, of closeness, no? And jumping in on, on digitalization with a lot of new technologies being normalized and uh, becoming actually part of the big banks as Deutsche Bank, for example, now is using a lot of blockchain for their smart contracts and so on. Um, we also know that you worked as a consultant for Credit Suisse and Kaixa Bank, so you have a deep understanding of how this kind of big corporate environment works in, in Europe and so on. Uh, so in that sense, I wanted to relate saying, how do you think that this kind of uh, microcredit implementation can help businesses and can help small entrepreneurs survive the COVID crisis? Hmm. So you, you're thinking about microcredit or digitalization here or, or combination of both? That's, that's a tough one. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm the bad uh, one today, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very interesting. I told you, one of the things that I like about IE is that I get, I learn from my students and I'm constantly challenged by them. Uh, again, um, this is another interesting topic that merits uh, deep thinking. You know, as researchers, we don't like to provide statements about things that we haven't deeply studied. So we're very wary about, about making such kind of hasty statements. Uh, but I guess that with the COVID situation right now, what is really important, at least for small businesses, first is access to credits. And, and, and I think that this goes even beyond the bank themselves. It's, it's probably at the government level because we know uh, this is an unprecedented pandemic with unprecedented impact in terms of access to liquidity or, or to credits in general. And the second aspect is probably uh, kind of democratizing digitalization. So uh, there is an, there are some in interesting initiatives happening recently in response to Amazon's uh, growth because of the pandemic. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but for example, there's been uh, in France, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the government has uh, decided to close all small shops uh, and, and leave big distribution chain open, which uh, created a lot of uh, uh, turmoil because small shops said, okay, you're opening big distribution because they're supposed to provide essential uh, products. Uh, but actually, what about the libraries that are in Carrefour? Just to give an example, you're closing my library, but you're opening the Carrefour's library. So they decided, okay, let's close the, the, the non-essential parts of distribution chains. And then others came and said, okay, what about Amazon? Amazon has grown, among other things, recently much more because of the COVID, because they are there as an alternative to the shops that were forced to close because of the government. And the answer is, okay, why don't you renew yourself and also go online? 
it's an easy it's it's easy to say that when you're a small shop in a small village and you already have very low margins to kind of ask the people in a couple of weeks to become digital and go online so where there are some interesting social entrepreneurship initiatives going on in spain in uk in france too where they are creating an alternative to amazon for this kind of shops they're helping them uh, upscale and digitalize themselves and they're opening the, uh, they're proposing themselves as a platform for that uh, so these these are ways to 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 kind of fight COVID and give maybe small companies the means to fight at at, at least a fair level with respect to big big tech giants no, absolutely. This is something that I actually had a lot of research on. It's uh, this impact like that now it's small. It's so hard for small boutiques. You know, there's, for instance, Farfetch, which is a, uh, a platform that I really like. And, and Farfetch gives the opportunity to smaller like boutiques to actually, you know, sell and compete against, you know, Luisa Via Roma or like these big corporations that kind of. And, and it's something that I think we should start looking at as like potential entrepreneurship opportunities because obviously we would be giving uh, an outlet to smaller smaller businesses and 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 we would still you know be able to to monetize on that which um but i remember that you also worked on the global entrepreneurship report which is something that I, I had to research a lot. Now I have I have a presentation later today about like, and I had to, you know, read a whole report to understand the trends and everything. So my last question would be, how do you think uh, the p- pandemic has impacted entrepreneurship in emerging countries? So now we've talked, you know, about platforms and all of this, and these are all things that more or less apply more to like Europe, but how can we tackle entrepreneurship in emerging countries now with the pandemic? So uh, I think it had it's it's it was kind of a double-edged sword because uh, let's say that the pandemic hit all entrepreneurs, whether in developed or developing countries, uh, more or less. Now the the thing with developing country is that if you are kind of the bottom of the pyramid and you are an informal entrepreneur, uh, you would be hit much more than regular entrepreneur because of the reason we mentioned before, because they're not digital, they maybe have a small mom and pop shop somewhere that was forced to close. Uh, so in that sense, they, they are kind of the bigger, one of the bigger losers from the pandemic, right? Uh, it depends on how you define entrepreneurship and you've probably seen in the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor reports that necessity versus opportunity entrepreneur, we call it, right? Uh, opportunity entrepreneurs in developing countries too, I think that they, they kind of uh, found maybe a, a way to to maybe kind of um, let's say that renew themselves or even grow or 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 digitalize themselves at a faster pace because the situation demanded it and also because uh, there are more funds that are going to developing countries uh, as a way to kind of uh, um, reduce the impact of the pandemic. So in that sense, they might have found a space that other type of entrepreneurs who are not part of these uh, fancy and, and international networks uh, ha- ha- might have not found. So it's really it's kind of a two level economies here happening, even in terms of entrepreneurship. And I think this is also a, an issue that we need to, to pay attention to. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, we, we see now, I think it's, in my opinion, it's moving towards more of like a needs-based entrepreneurship. You know, we see in Venezuela, people like uh, leveraging a lot on like online banking to kind of fight the instability of the financial system. So I think we're going to see a lot of that in all of these emerging countries. Yeah, informal entrepreneurship is is here to stay. And, and you can see it also in academic research. Uh, People in entrepreneurship seem initially were focusing more on uh, fancy, th- fancy things like venture capital, but now they they understand also that there, there are very real economy oh, yeah. stuff that needs to be researched, like informal entrepreneurs. Absolutely. That's basically what we've studied throughout our pattern. <laughs> when there are problems, when there is uncertainty, risks there, there are also a lot of opportunities to be to be exploited and. In, in the long term, this is what like flips the economies, flips the way people people live, giving more opportunities, uh, more innovation and drives the world toward, um, I don't want to say it, but a better place, like in terms of innovation driven, in terms of giving more accessibility, as you were saying before, democratizing things that before were basically inaccessible. Absolutely. So um, I think for the last time, for this first series, it's time to open our time machine. So Rashid, a question for you. If you could go back to a time and place where to live, where would it be? Whoa. <laughs> something that I lived before or so something that I would like, would have liked to live? Up to you. <laughs> you can. Okay, I don't know. Uh, there is something about India that has always attracted me. I've never been there, uh, but you know the the smell of the food, the colors, the people, the the, the breadth of this country that is almost a continent that attracts me a lot. So I don't know if it's back in time or in future time. I would love to spend some time there. <laughs> Giorgio can give you some advice on that then. Wow, <laughs> okay. Incredible melting pot and every region is like a nation. So exactly. yeah, you, you stated it like super correctly. It's it's a continent in, in a country. It's incredible. <laughs> But thank you so much, Rashida, for coming to our last episode with us today. We really appreciate it and thank you for the amazing insights you have given us. Thank you for having me. It was an interesting conversation as usual. Thank you, Rashid, again, and thanks, Ronnie, for the last time. Now it's time to clock out. This was AI Unfolded, the first podcast unveiling people behind the institution.